Welcome to the Hypergen Founders Podcast, the show where we explore the minds behind the innovative companies. I'm your host, Julia. If you are curious about the world of business and the people shaping it, this podcast is for you. Stay tuned for engaging discussions on technology innovations and leadership. This is the Founders Podcast. Let's begin. Welcome, guys, to the Hypergen Podcast. Today, we have Andrew Amigo from Blackburn Energy. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. You guys are doing some pretty interesting, awesome stuff with Blackburn out there. Can you tell us more about what you guys do? No, oh, absolutely. At the technology level, what we're on about is kinetic energy recovery. So we look at the world and we say, even though most folks are focused on the digital aspects of our lives, we still really live in a very mechanized world. So the way you got to your home or to your building, the way you got to the floor in your building, there's this huge mechanical universe out there that is consuming energy and it's really inefficient. So we look at that universe and we say, we can do better than that. We can actually start to recover some of that uh, lost energy, harvest it, turn it into usable clean energy that we can then redeploy back into our lives and into the grid in general, or to just make systems more efficient. That's at the technology level where we're playing. And we have, I think it's 18 patents in 11 countries now. So we're, we're really on about doing this all over the world. From a more human perspective, the, the approach we're taking is really about empowering individuals, right? So if you own a truck, we want to be able to give you personally the ability to create clean energy, to use it to improve your life. And that may take a myriad of forms, but we want to empower people to be able to create energy and, and be more efficient, reduce carbon, but also give them that that little bit of freedom that comes with a little bit of energy that they can deploy in their life. So we look at it on those two different levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. If you would explain it to a five-year-old in a few sentences. That's an interesting way to think of it. So I'd say we, we make electricity. So in the market right now, what we are in the commercial world, and then we have some government world uh, contracts as well. We're really about taking those really big trucks on the road, and every time they're like slowing down or rolling down a hill and they're trying to stop the vehicle, that's wasted energy. And we convert that to electricity and then we use it to replace having to run diesel engines. So it's really just those giant trucks that are right behind you on the highway coming down the hill. We're, we're trying to make clean energy from the lost energy of that thing coming rolling down a hill or trying to stop at a stoplight or whatever that whatever the opportunity is and then yeah. company name can you tell a story behind it and why did you come up with it yeah i started the company when i was living in gloucester massachusetts which is in the it's on cape ann in massachusetts it's really the maritime gloucester is very much a, a maritime port. It's a deep water port. And historically, there's been fishing there from really the founding of the country and actually before. But the fishing industry really got going in Gloucester uh, a very long time ago. So back in the 1800s, they used to fish on sailing ships. And then you would go out in a dory, you, these big flat bottom uh, rowboats, and they would just throw lines over and hook fish, right? That's how it was done back then. And in those days, if you were in a dory and you got lost, a storm rolls in, fog, whatever, they just left you for dead. That That's how it worked. And every year they would put your name on the wall and it'd be a big ceremony of how many people they lost that year to fishing. 
so the, the 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 history there is very rich. It's very much alive. People still lose their lives in fishing. But there, there was a story of one man, his name was Howard Blackburn. And back in 1883, he got lost in a storm with his dory mate, cut off from the main ship, and quite literally left for dead. And he did something that nobody before him, and I don't think anybody since did. He, he, his will to live was so strong, he froze his hands. He, he had these big wool mittens, and he dipped them in the North Atlantic, and he froze his hands, and he committed to rowing, and he rowed for five days. His dory mate dies. He makes it to Newfoundland, loses all of his fingers and thumbs, but makes it back to Gloucester as a hero that conquered the ocean, the only person to have ever done it. And then he goes on to become an entrepreneur. And he becomes a sea captain. He sails solo across the Atlantic twice. He he has a famous tavern in, in Gloucester where he's this huge celebrity. He sailed around uh, South America to come back up to Alaska to look for gold. He, he lives this incredible life with no fingers and thumbs, but it was this sort of embrace of the challenge. And, and when I started the company, what we're trying to do is the hard stuff. We're trying to not just bring a hardware technology, but we're trying to change the way that people, the, the world thinks about clean energy and, and how we go about producing it and distributing it. And I said, to, I said to my wife at the time, I said, the only way we're going to be successful is if we commit, if we essentially freeze our hands to the oars and never stop rowing, no matter how painful it gets, just never stop rowing, we can be successful. But that's the thing that's going to take to do this. And we're nine years in, I, I thought it would be four years, maybe five. We're in our ninth year. It is a challenge. It is hard, but it's also really rewarding. We took the story, we took the name. And the journey is our sort of metaphorical journey out in the ocean, committing to the challenge. Wow. Definitely didn't expect that kind of story. I looked at your experience that you've been into law school and you have your law experience. And then you have your experience working in investment strategy. And now you're in renewable energy. This is way different. Why like this? What happened to you after your law journey, law school, working in court, and then this is just complete change. If you can just share what happened there. Yeah. So yeah, my, my background's a, a little bit, perhaps more varied than most, more than some, less than others. Blackburn in some ways is a return to some things earlier in my life. I grew up very much blue collar. We were mostly roofing contractors and we drove equipment and grew up around trucks and all that kind of stuff. And the mantra was get an education. I went to college originally to play hockey, not to go to college and when that didn't work out, I had to reinvent myself, went back to university, was actually a philosophy major, philosophy and criminal justice, and had this idea that I wanted to get into international humanitarian law, human rights law, mostly around international criminal court, like the, the Nuremberg trials and things of that nature. I ended up going to law school, worked in human rights for a while. I actually worked for an NGO that helped create the International Criminal Court. So I spent a bunch of years at the UN, um, both in New York, Rome, The Hague, um, negotiating the International Criminal Court. And we had some success there. We actually created the Office of Defense Counsel. And that was part of the original journey for me for being a lawyer. And, and I love that. It, it was difficult to survive and make a living and have a life. I got married. My first kids were coming. And so I had to go get a quote unquote real job, right? So I went into law firms and then I ended up working in a big corporation and I did that for a while. And 
I handled some really big scandals like the AIG stuff with Elliot Spitzer and those investigations and then had enough of that where I got a really good dose of that side of the, the doctor side of the corporate world and had some great experience, worked with some great people. And after one of the financial crises, they started shutting things down and I helped them sell some companies and things. And they said, hey, why don't you pick where you want to go? And I said, I want to go to Hartford Ventures, right? At the time, it was this corporate venture capital group and they were just getting going. And the people were awesome. And I got to do things that I normally weren't able to do in the corporate world. I, I was on the innovation teams. So I was inventing things, which was a really rich time for me. A lot of my patents come out of that time. But I was also the lawyer for the group. And I was also on the investment team. So I got to see it from all kinds of angles. And it was really an amazing time. And we invested in ChargePoint. At the time, it was Coulomb back in the B round. We were doing a lot of vehicle electrification. We were doing a lot of stuff with commercial fleets, telematics, and trying to find ways of being more efficient and things of that nature. So it was this amazing time. I absolutely loved it. And then the financial crisis just kept getting worse, and that got shut down. And I spent a few more years there selling off parts of the company and the cleanup of all the financial crises of, at the time, a multinational financial institution. We parted it out and it became just what was left was a domestic insurance company. And at that point, I had enough scandals. I, I figured I watched so much mismanagement, fraud, waste. I figure I can do as least that good, right? I'm going to go start my own company. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be in these big companies. It's just cog in this wheel. That I just hated it. I just totally bottomed out. And the thing I got the bug for was the, the startups. That felt natural to me to be in that world. And eventually I ended up leaving the corporate world and uh, I didn't have the courage to start Blackburn right off the bat. I ended up working with some other startup, a crowdfunding company. We won the first equity crowdfunding platforms and that didn't go anywhere. So I tried different things. And then I finally, I just said, the thing that I'm passionate about is this idea I had for what eventually became Blackburn. And I said, okay, jumping in with two feet and I've been doing it ever since. Well, you do have a great experience and it's interesting how you finally ended up getting your company. Can you talk a little bit about your team as well? How you gather people with the same vision as you and how you're working with them today? Yeah, team is, you know, it's a cliche because when you're in the startup world, they always talk about team, right? You hear it first starting out. And a lot of that is true. It's so important, right? You can't do it all alone. You don't even want to try. And the quality of the enterprise is really in the team. So over the years, when I first started, I was completely bootstrapping. I had very little money. So I had my first team and they were all people that I was paying part-time contract. And slowly but surely, I lost them to bigger opportunities because I didn't, I wasn't able to raise enough money. And so I lost some really good people that helped me out early on, just over economics. And eventually you start raising money, you start getting better at raising money, you start piling up the war chest, and then you say, okay, you hire a friend, you hire some folks close to you. But the team building process is constant, right? As the company grows, it changes and the needs change and the, the type of people, some people are with you all the way through, some people come and go. And that's hard. Sometimes that's hard in a small company, you have personal relationships and there's some in and out. Uh, the team that I have now is really fantastic. We have 
a three-person board. Uh, our largest investor is Toyota Two Show, and they're a fantastic partner. They're on the board, and they bring us some resources. A couple of people that work with us. Our team is six full-time dedicated people and growing. We'll probably be close to eight by the end of the year. Um, we have some engineers. Bilal is is a controls engineer. Uh, we have Gina, who's our corporate controller, who's fantastic. He actually running a company, there's parts of it that you just have to be good at running a company, right? You have to balance the books and close them every month and you're, you have to have a good balance sheet. And so I have some awesome people that take care of those things. We have some fantastic folks on sales and marketing like Ben and Catherine are just awesome. They're really killing it right now. And we have Kerry, who's actually on the military side. We actually did a huge project for the Marine Corps this last year, which we're very proud of. That, so that's in testing, and we've got some team members dedicated to that. And we're really adding and growing. And, and then the other part, the way we've done it, which is perhaps a little different, is we have some partnerships and relationships that are really important to us. Atlantic Industrial Models, those folks have keys to our building. They're so much part of our team. There's two or three people there, Matt. They're like integrated into what we do, and we really couldn't be successful without them. And then we have some folks at Algonquin who are just amazing on the manufacturing side, but there's a core team inside. And then there's these rings of people that we have these long-term relationships with now that are really fantastic. And Toyota Two Show is one of those groups. Travis and Ken are always with us, helping us run projects and things. So it's this sort of mix of full-time people that are regular employees every day. And then you have this ring fence of partnerships and friends that are uh, really helping you out. And I'll be honest with you, you, you can't talk about team without talking about the extended team. Personally, my family is amazing. They've helped. I have five kids. Uh, wow. so <laughs> my kids, they get recruited all the time. Hey, and they always say, am I going to get paid? And I always say yes. And that doesn't always work out, but they're good sports and they come back anyway. My wife is amazing. She's always helping out. And that's true with everybody who works here. There's always this sort of extended family of people around that without them, you're not going to be successful. So it, I hate to say it, it's like a little village, right? It's this little collection of people. And it's cool, right? Because those are meaningful relationships now. What do you say that you value the most in people that you work with? So I, I like interesting people that that are that have done different things in their lives and are if you look at the background of all of our team members, it's all it's a little eclectic. They've all done different things. Um, but they're all curious people that work really hard and are sincere in their effort. And And for me, I'm lucky because they embrace the ideas and vision of the company. And from a CEO of a startup perspective, when you have people that embrace the vision of what you're doing, it's powerful. It really is powerful because they're all in on the problems, right? Startups are really just about solving a series of problems, trying to make something work. And if you don't have people who are signed up to play that and engage in it, some nights are really long and we've had some crazy experiences. And But when you're all, when you're, when you know what you're doing and why you're doing it, it's just so powerful. For me, it's, we like nice people that are curious, people that like to solve problems and that people that like to feel like, hey, I just spent my whole day working on something. I'm exhausted, but that was really satisfying. Right. Like they're not just showing up to work because it's a job. It's a it's part of what they're trying to do in their life, too. And, and that's when we find that right fit. It's really cool.
it's really special, actually. But again, that's hard to that we've had people come through that don't work out, right? Like some people come in for long periods of time and have left. Some people have been here short periods of time and say, hey, it's the startup world isn't for everybody. It's it's its own little religion, its own way of life. So not for everybody, for sure. People that care means a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't mention Winnie. We, we actually have extended team members. Winnie is in Nairobi, Kenya. And part of our vision is to use our technology to bring energy to the entire world, right? And I know, I know how that sounds, right? Oh, wow, this guy's taking crazy pills, right? So we look at the world and we say, like Elon Musk, right? Great guy, amazing tech. How many people are actually going to buy a $2 million Tesla electric semi-truck in the world? 10, 100? Like you're talking about places that barely have an electric grid. So what do we do there? What do we do for those people? How do we help them? And again, it's not a knock on Musk. He's just an easy topic. His tech doesn't apply. It just doesn't apply. And if you know anything about that part of the world, you realize how absurd it is to even think that anybody's ever going to buy one of those trucks for that market. So we look at that and say, okay, that's fine. That's cool. But we can do something about that. And and if you and this is the part that a, a, might be a little different for me. I guess I look at it as, if you can do something about it legitimately, you have the obligation to try. We have some folks like Winnie and, and, and uh, he's out in Nairobi in Kenya. And what we're trying to do in Nairobi is, yes, we have our commercial use of our product, but we also have a use where you take the energy off the truck. So you, you're driving the truck, you harvest all the wasted kinetic energy, you store it in battery. And then we have a couple partners we're working with where we'll deliver that energy to schools. And we'll give kids little lanterns that they charge on those batteries, and they will take home light to a home that has no light. I think that's cool. And I, I don't have all the economics worked out, but there are models in there. And I guess you just have to be crazy enough to try and willing enough to, to give it a go. That's part of what we're trying to do. And when you work with people who look at that and go, okay, it's a little crazy, but I'm all in. Let's give it a go. And they work with you on that. That's when the team is special, right? Then it's okay. That now we're really gonna, now we can change the world. And that's hard to find, but when you find it, it's really special. And it, and then it makes all the world a difference. And, and that is why team is so important. I don't think you sound crazy. And a lot of people <laughs> seem, feels like you're crazy. It's just about looking at the world today and what's happening in technology and not in, in politics everywhere in the world. You, you can believe in anything. So. Right. It's just about uh, how inspired you are to change something here. So you are inspired. So that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Some people think inspired and crazy as like brother and sister, two sides of the same coin. Not all investors want to hear me talking about wanting to do things in Kenya or in India or in South America. And I got my bones to pick with venture too. Venture is awesome. We wouldn't be here without the, the investment and the money. But venture, and I think in the U.S., might be a little bit broken, to be honest with you. And when venture started out in the U.S. 40, 50 years ago, it wasn't even called venture capital, but they were after big ideas that changed the world and were willing to invest in hardware over long periods of time. It was patient capital. It was capital that was willing to take a long view. And we're just so socialized around, you know, the two and 20 model in the venture firm, and you got to flip it in three or four years. And, you know, everything has to be 
you know, a SaaS software, a hundred X return in three years. And so there's what that's just crowded out. That's just absorbed a lot of the money that's out there. And, and when you come with the vision that says, look, we're, we're making a hardware product. It's going to take time to develop. It's not software. You don't just have a million people log on and download your app. You've got to make it, you've got to distribute it. And you want to go do hard problems like how do you bring electricity to the folks in 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 Africa that don't have electricity? Those are big problems. They take long times. They're hard. They take dedication over many years. And what I found is so few people are willing to go on that journey. They want a, a quick return, a fast exit, flip the company. Couldn't care less what happens to the tech after they flip it and they move on to their next thing. That's fine. I get it. You're making money. They certainly make more money than I do. But that means people that have long visions that want to do things like what we're trying to do, it gets harder and harder to raise that money. And it, it's just, it can be a bit of a challenge. So in all honesty, those things we're on about, you have to control your message when you're talking to investors. And, and it's a shame. You shouldn't have to. You, you should be able to put it all out on the table and have a and have people that are patient in their capital but we live in a instant gratification world i get that so you're saying that in venture capitals the priority goes to those who the, the return of money is faster yep not in the, so the inspiring way, crazy ideas right. that could bring a lot of money in three years yeah so a fund a venture firm goes out, raises a fund. They tell their limited partners they're going to have a certain rate of return. The fund is only, its life is maybe five years, maybe seven years. Um, within and, and at the end of that time, they have to exit every one of their investments so that they the venture firm gets paid. So there, if you if a fund invested you in the third year of their fund or their fourth year of their fund, and they only have two years left. In two years, they're going to be pushing to exit from your that company, which means a liquidation event, sell it, take it public, something like that. So that pace generates this sort of turn and turnover. Um, and that's just the way the game mostly works. We're looking for folks that have maybe a longer term vision that are not trying to flip the company in three years. And that is increasingly harder to find as venture narrows its focus. And you're competing against, say, software companies where you can have three people code up an app and in two years get 10 million users and sell it for $100 million. And, and then there's nothing really created there, in my opinion, but I'm cynical. And then they go on to the next one. And so when you're saying, hey, I'm going to make something out of steel and metal, and we're going to sell it all over the world, which means we got to make it all over the world. We got to distribute it all over the world. It's got to be installed on trucks. It's, these are harder problems to tackle. And there's not as many people like rolling up their sleeves and saying, we're with you. Let's go, let's go fight that hard fight. That one's tough. Let's take that one on. And honestly, money tends to follow trends. If it, I would make, I, I would raise more money if I just told everybody we make electric trucks, no matter how true that is, right? Just look up Nikola, look up XL Fleet, all these companies, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars and then within months announced their technology doesn't work, but they were able to do it. So good for them. Good for them. There's a big tendency for those electric cars startups. They get 
absurdly funded and absurdly yep. overvalued without much revenue or what without much backing. So how would you describe like why are they leading so much towards electric, although the numbers don't show there or uh, there's still a lot of problems around uh, full electric? It's a little hard to explain. I, I will tell you that we've run into people who like we've worked with cities and, and, and some governments and and universities of big organizations and they'll admit that they know they can't use electric trucks because the range isn't there. The, the one, the trucks don't even exist. They can't charge it. You talk to your big energy producers, the grid producers, the, the grid folks, and they'll tell you, we don't have the capacity. Like we don't even have the power plants to charge what they're talking about. So there's almost no part of the equation that actually works right now. And yet, Huge sums of money pour into anybody who shows up and says, hey, I, I make electric something or other. And I don't have a great explanation for why that is. And we've seen huge piles of money chase, chase things that are obviously not true if you just looked at it for a minute. And again, I, you can look at all the public examples of companies that went out and they raised, they formed a SPAC, the special purpose asset company, and they raised hundreds of millions, close to a billion dollars in several cases, only to announce a few months later that it was all vaporware, it didn't work, or it didn't exist, or it, it wasn't even there. And I just marvel at that. I don't, I don't have an explanation why the so-called smartest people in the room poured hundreds of millions of dollars into technology that doesn't exist. So I don't have a great ex explanation to it, but people doing it all the time. And this has happened before with other other things where everybody thinks they're investing in the next Google or the next Facebook. And that's, there's a lot of that sort of chasing of those unicorns. Um, and again, there's a lot of really amazing companies. It's not just mine. I'm actually lucky to know half a dozen to a dozen CEOs of companies that make amazing technology that have a very hard time getting a hearing or getting any visibility in all the noise that is created by these mega West Coast tech megalomaniacs that have all the, the PR and have all the money behind them. And there's some there's better technology out there that just can't get a voice. Am I one of them? I'll let anybody, other people judge. But I can definitely point to companies that I know of that I think are amazing and they can barely get a, a, a seat at the table. So it's not just us. It's, it's, it's across the board. And if you think about in general, like all of the people that are in technology, that are not in technology, what is the big challenge that's facing all of us today and going to be facing in the next 10, 20 years? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think at some point, so in the electric world, the electric vehicle world and this push to electrification, the biggest challenge I see if our goal is actually to reduce carbon, clean up the planet, and make a better society, we have to come to terms with what we're doing. So we all want lithium battery packs for cars, but nobody wants to, everybody wants to turn a blind eye to where the lithium comes from. And the communities that are destroyed in the environment that is desiccated to dig that lithium out of the ground, 
almost all of it, I think it's 85% is sent to China for processing. Not because China is the cleanest, most efficient, but because they quite frankly don't mind letting lots of people die in the process and just completely polluting the, the planet. Um, you know, there are some folks, I, I'd cite people to the Southwest Research Institute, and, and there are others who have done the math and have said, if you buy an electric vehicle, it's going to take you seven or eight years of using that on clean electricity to just offset the carbon it took to build that electric vehicle. And if you do the math, which they claim they did, and I'll take it on faith, that a hybrid is actually, in terms of automobiles, passenger automobiles, a hybrid is actually the most carbon-friendly of anything out there. And there's just no room to have that kind of conversation. I'm not just say that isn't even a hundred percent true, but we can't really even get to the conversation about that um, because it's just clamped down that everything has to be this one solution. And I look at the world and say, my technology doesn't make sense for everybody. It makes sense for some people and where it makes sense, it makes a lot of sense. So it really should be a, a whole spectrum of technologies that sometimes are combined and sometimes are independent to solve these problems. And, and it isn't this monolithic, it has to be a battery electric vehicle. I, I just don't think, I don't think from the technology perspective, that's right. I don't think from the environment perspective, that's right. I don't think from the human human being perspective, that's the right solution everywhere in the world. But we tend to take this blanket approach and, and drown out everything else. And I think that's a real challenge. If you're a tech entrepreneur, what you're being socialized into is if you want to raise money, you better say you're making an electric car or an electric truck because you'll get lots of money. If you have some technology that says, I can run a truck on 100% biodiesel, they don't even want to hear from you. And, and I know a company that Optimus does that. It's amazing technology. And in some places, that is the best solution. But try getting them a, a fair hearing and at the table with all of this noise. So the biggest challenge to me is finding a way to allow tech entrepreneurs to bring together solutions and let the best solution win and not presuppose a final solution on everybody the way we're doing it now. Ultimately, I think hydrogen has a seat at the table. It has problems. I don't think diesel goes away. I don't think it can go away anytime soon. And I just wish we got a little more grounded in where we are, what we're trying to do, and then lay out paths to get there. And unfortunately, the hype uh, grounds out really good technology that may be may be the thing we need. And that technology may get buried and we never find it. And that's, I think that's a real challenge going forward for a lot of people. And we'll, we'll, I think we'll sort that stuff out, but we have to get some of the hysteria out of it, out of the conversation and get people a little bit more grounded at what we're trying to, to do and refocus on, hey, we're really trying to reduce global carbon. So what reduces global carbon? Instead of just saying everything has to be battery electric vehicle, no matter what the cost. That's a problem right now. So hopefully that'll sort out. I, I think people are starting to realize you had Amazon announced and they got taken to the woodshed for it. They had to announce, yeah, we're not going to have a full electric fleet of things. That's not actually going to work. 
that's a good step, right? That's okay. That's recognizing some reality. That doesn't mean they're not buying electric vans. They just have to realize that that's not going to work for them. I think they have 60 or 80,000 vans. Like you're not going to make them all electric overnight. So I think when we do that, I think then we allow really good technology to come in and fix, fix those problems and then just make everything a little bit better uh, one piece at a time kind of thing. So yeah, sorry to ramble they're... on about that. No, but it's a very important topic. Nowadays, it's more about how to reduce the cost, what's going to be faster to produce, instead of just thinking about overall tragedy that can happen over time. So nobody's yep. thinking about that because it's not going to be their problem then. Now it's the but, problem of money. That's right. Unfortunately, yeah. More material yep. materialistic thinking than environmental. I've talked to battery companies who say exactly what you said. It's okay. So we're in commercial trucking and commercial trucking hauls, toxic waste, explosives, corrosives, like all kinds of stuff that you do not want to catch on fire because it's incredibly toxic. In the battery companies, some of them I talk to, okay, that's not my problem. It's, it's somebody's problem, right? If that battery touches off a truck full of toxic chemicals and it burns, that's a problem. Maybe we should think about that before we do that. But so many people just say, that's not my problem. I just sell this and I just want to sell as many as I can. And I don't care about that. Eventually, we have to address those issues and hopefully sooner rather than later. But yeah. we'll see. Hopefully. I was thinking to ask you about the mentors that you have over time. All the people that were mentoring you or helping you grow were mm -hmm. in the investment journey that you had working with all of those people that care about money only. So mm -hmm. what were the advice that you remember until today that is still making you think about it and uh, give the same advice to people that you work? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I've been very lucky to come across some amazing people in all these different parts of my life. And so I worked with my dad in a small family business for years, and he's my first mentor and somebody who I always go back to. He passed about two years ago, but an amazing character in his own right. And his work ethic, I think, is the thing I took the most. And he had the approach of, if, you're, if you want to achieve something, you're only limited by your own willingness to go and put the effort in, and that you can achieve anything you want. And I got that from both my parents. And I think that underneath everything is true. So that allowed me to go to law school when nobody in my family had ever gone to law school. Like we're not folks from the Ivy League. So it was like, okay, no, I, I can do that. Some dumb hockey player who washed out can find a brain and go do something. And that once you start pulling away the, the things that limit you, which are mostly in your own head and realize that you can do anything, then the world opens up. So that sort of sent me off from my little corner of the world to go off and do things that I don't think I ever would have done. When in the on the law side of things, I was lucky to early on I got to work with I worked in the Massachusetts Attorney General's office for a while with this woman, Barbara Anthony. She was the head of the Public Protection Bureau and she was pretty amazing. She was tough as nails, but very smart very poised and I watched her take on the HMO industry. She called them to her office and I was like the paralegal on the side. And, and she was just so driven, so smart, so prepared. Like it wasn't just some hysterical yelling session. He knew he had it down cold. 
could box them into a corner and, and make them do things they didn't want to do. And I, and I was like, wow, that is, I was so impressed by that. And that made me want to like study and be prepared to be ready all the time because you don't know what's walking in your door. And so that was awesome. When I was in law school, I had some great professors, but I actually worked with this woman, Elise Gruels. She's a French-Canadian criminal defense attorney. And she started the International Criminal Defense Attorneys Association. Long story short, I had written a paper. I was in Washington presenting it to actually the U.S. ambassador on war crimes. And I met her at the U.N. And again, she was just this (laughs) really smart, tough as nails, force of nature. She's there by herself. She just started the ICDAA, the International Criminal Defense Attorneys Association. And immediately I took to her and and I spent the next four years with her at the UN and learned a ton about how to advocate, how to be strong, how to, again, take on the world, right? It was just like take on the world lesson and that you can do it. Anybody can do it. In some ways, she was just a criminal defense lawyer from Montreal. Like you could easily try to dismiss her, but she wouldn't allow you to dismiss her. And that was pretty, pretty damn special. Uh, that was all. That was an amazing time. I actually went to uh, uh, the former Yugoslavia. To, my first clerkship was actually in the international, uh, in the um, Constitutional Court of Slovenia, right as the Yugoslav War was winding down. And uh, there was a guy there, Aaron Mautic, and he he was living in the former Yugoslavia. They're still in the middle of this war. The ink isn't even dry on their constitution, and he was already looking out into the future and saying, "Okay, I need to reach out." and bring in the things that can help us get to the future. And I just remember his perspective on the world and and being in a a country that was still going through a horrible war and everything that's involved in that. And he maintained poise and focus that I I was just truly impressed with. And and he was the reason I was there because he reached out to the outside world to say, hey, we want to bring people in. And, and that was just, those kinds of things just completely blew me away and left a mark, a very strong impression on me. In the venture world, Tom Whitaker, he cut his teeth at Visa Ventures in the Valley. He was the head of Hartford Ventures, and I got to work with him. He trained me on how to be a venture investor and really showed me the venture game. And I'm still a good friend. I still talk to him. But in the venture world, he's still somebody I, I look up to and say, hey, that guy knows how to do it right. He's one of the good guys out there. So I've been lucky up and down the line. I've had a lot of really good people to work with that have each left a mark on some part of my life. Um, My dad is the reason I'm a commercial truck driver and I can weld and make things. And Barbara Anthony is the reason I ultimately went to law school. Am I going? Am I not going? And I worked with her and I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I'm going. Like, look at this woman. She's awesome. Everybody's left a mark and and along the way, my, why did I get involved in the International Criminal Court and all that stuff? My mother gave me Ellie Wiesel's book, Night. And I remember reading it as a kid and being like, I don't understand. I need to figure this out. It's this weird collection of people that have touched my life in a way, each in their own way, each in some small part that have contributed to me doing all these different things. And now they all come together for me in Blackburn, which is a nice show. I hope that answered that. I'm sorry to rattle on so much. No, it is in a lot of ways. You seem to be like very just genuinely curious person about everything. So that's why you have such a wide experience, which is very nice to hear nowadays. It's not boring to talk to. It's actually very interesting. So all of the questions that I prepared doesn't make sense. 
because <laughs> so many other topics, which is super cool. One of the last questions that I wanted to ask you is that you've been through a lot of different experience, been through different people or different companies. Do you remember yourself starting your career and just from the very beginning, like fresh after college and then you're like, okay, this is my first job. What would you tell yourself like being today with all of this baggage of things that you learned and experienced to that young self that you're just starting? Wow. So you definitely have to follow your instincts. So I took a lot of side turns on things that, you know, I, I don't have any regrets in that regard, but there were some things that, like when I first got out of university, I worked for a company and got seduced by this idea for a number of months, less than a year of, I can just make a bunch of money. So isn't that the good thing? And it took me a little bit to work my way back out of that and say, no, that's not who I am. I'm not just about this, like trying to make a bunch of money. And I don't really want to be those people that are out doing what they're doing. And it sometimes it takes you a little bit. You, sometimes you have to go down a dead end, right? To figure out that it's a dead end. So I don't regret that. But I guess if looking back, I'd say there were signs earlier in that journey down the dead end that I should have done a U-turn and I did, I blew right through them. So you got to listen to that inner monologue a little bit that says, hey, this doesn't feel right to me. This isn't who I am. This isn't why I wanted to do the thing I'm doing. And that happened a few times in corporate law. I ended up in big corporations and we were involved in these scandals and I was handling some stuff and it was, and I should have recognized earlier that is not where, that isn't why I went to law school. I didn't go to law school to defend big corporations. And that's what I found myself doing. And I'm like, how did I get here? And there were so many signs along the way that if I had just been listening a little bit more to that inner voice or that inner self saying, this isn't why you went to law school. This isn't why, and I know you're getting a paycheck. I probably would have detoured off of some of that sooner. And that probably would have led to some better results. You have to follow your instincts and you have to do it boldly with an, an acknowledgement that if you work really hard, you can do anything. And you don't let people scare you off of where you want to go. And that happened to me. People scared me off from things. And it was like, when I got married and we had our first kid on the way, it was like, I was petrified. It was like, oh no, I, now I've got to be, I've got to be this guy who like family guy. And I have to, and so I made decisions based out of fear instead of just embracing the joy of the moment and saying, stay true to yourself. You'll figure it out. I know now I can figure it out, but. It took a long time. <laughs> After five kids, I bet you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't recommend starting a startup when you have five kids. It's amazing, but you might want to do that before you have the five kids. Just a thought. I'll just throw that out there for those that may be wondering. But if you do have five kids, don't let that stop you from doing what you want to do. You can still do it. It's going to be a little harder. You don't quit, right? You don't give up. You, uh, you go for it. So I, and that took me a while to figure that out. So. I think we, we can end this up with a big advice from you to those people who have great ideas, but they just don't know what to do with them. I would say if you have a great idea and you want to do something with it, 
just recognize that if you true if you're honest about that and you want to make it something, there's no shortcut. So don't be seduced by the one eight hundred patent this and we'll take your idea and you'll be a millionaire. Like that stuff in my experience, no. If you have an idea and you want to do something with it, go do it. That means make it in your garage, prove that it works, and then go sell it to somebody, right? Or go solve the problem. And there is no better process than doing. I know lots and lots of people. It's funny. I meet them all the time. They're like, oh, I had an idea very similar to that. And you know what? That's great. They did. But they never did anything. They just had the idea. And this is the part where it's a little scary, right? Because you have the idea, but you also have your life. And your life has got this job and you make money and you live in a nice place or you have some level of comfort. And you know, if you go pursue this idea, you're going to expose yourself to the world. And you know what's going to happen? Half the people in your life are going to say, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. It'll never work. And you'll be like, oh deflated some people say oh that's great sell your house and you're like i can't sell my house what the hell is that advice if you're serious about it you're gonna have to just embrace all of that stuff and you always listen to people but never internalize the negativity right i can't count how many times i was told by teams of engineers that will never work it, it you're, they would say things like, oh, that's perpetual motion, that's dumb, that violate, like all of these things. It's happened to me more times than I can count. It's always a little difficult. You feel that inside of, oh, that guy's really smart. That was a PhD engineer who just told me this is, none of this is going to work. And you're like, uh-oh, and you want to quit and go home. If you're serious about it, get ready for that embrace it and then go build it and you can make it into something but don't expect that the world is just gonna say oh that's wonderful here you go and it'll be easy it'll be hard but that's the barrier you have to cross of getting through that and most of it's in your head you're gonna deal with criticism you're gonna deal with people telling you're wrong you're going to fail many times but if you're committed if you frozen your hands to the oars and you're rowing, you're just not going to stop. When it gets painful and hard, you won't stop and then you will be successful. So I, I, I think there is a path for those ideas. I wish more people would do it, but I also recognize that it's hard. And I would say you're not alone. Find people to talk to that are entrepreneurs that have done it. Some of those people have amazing advice and some of those people have horrible advice and you're going to get all of it, but you can find your way and you can find people that will support you. And when you find a person who supports you, hang on to them with both hands. Don't let go. Right. Those are the that's your team, either your literal team or that ring fence of team of family, friends and what have you. But that they'll get you through. Go for it. But be ready. Be ready for the world that claims to love innovation will all tell you can't do it because you're no Steve Jobs, you're no Bill Gates, you're no Elon Musk. You know what? The guys that invented flying were two bicycle repairmen who never went to university. You can do anything you want. Literally, you can go figure out how to fly. So screw them, do it. That's how I look at it. I don't know. It's probably bad advice, but 
No, this crying. is great advice because there's a lot of ugly truths that you're going to face that people don't like it, that people don't respect you or they don't understand what you mean. But it doesn't matter because this is your idea and your inspiration and your life. So right. this is, this is right. this exactly how we need it, to face it. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter who your parents are or what your skin color. None of that. It's all crap. None of that stuff matters. It only matters if you believe and you're willing to put in the work. If you believe and you're willing to put in the work, you'll be successful. And people, the real people out there will respect you and, and you'll get there. Don't ever let that stuff get in your head. In fact, my view of it is if you went to an Ivy League school, you're probably soft and weak and I'll run you over. So get out of my way. I'd rather have some blue collar guy who's been fighting his whole life than some guy in wingtips who's never had a fight for anything. Go for it. Great. So I think we can stop on this inspiring note. We've got a lot of very interesting things from you and great experience to be honest didn't expect to hear all of that and all of these stories it's very inspiring for me as well i feel like i want to do something <laughs> work on my idea cool no that's awesome thank you enjoy your rest of the day okay thank you guys talk to you soon yeah. take care